to the book of Acts, chapter 10, studying the book of Acts together on Sunday morning, and we come now to a man by the name of Cornelius in Acts, chapter 10. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, gentlemen are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you flag them and get their attention, they'll give you a Bible. It'll be marked right to our passage this morning, and then please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today if you don't own a Bible. The book of Acts, chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, verse 1, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and when he had observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And he will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And so when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. And they carried this message to Peter in Joppa. And Peter's having his own encounter with God. We'll look at that next time. But we'll pick things up following Peter's coming now to uh, Caesarea to meet with Cornelius. He's come into the house in verse 34, and Peter opened up his mouth and he said, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they hang, killed by hanging on a tree, the cross. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. And not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us, to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all of the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him should, will receive remission of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for this book of yours, the Bible. Thank you for what it does in our lives every single day and every single time that we open it up. And Lord, the world, as everybody can see, that has any kind of eyes or capacity for observation, is just going insane and in, in moving so quickly in just crazy, crazy kind of decisions and, and uh, a move away from you, which is always to move away from decent and in order and into chaos, Lord. And it's so painful to watch and disheartening to watch. And we thank you that you've given us your Bible to help us maintain perspective in the middle of man's insanity and experiments and decision-making. And we pray, Lord, that you would use your Scripture this morning to strengthen us, to feed us, to wash us, Lord, to regain perspective concerning life and our individual lives, concerning what is temporal and what is eternal, as Pastor Jeremiah has already prayed. Thank you for what your Word does. And we just join in the prayer of our Savior of Jesus when he prayed, Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And so, Lord, we've been in this world. A lot of things have attached themselves to us this week. And we pray that you would wash us and sanctify us with the truth of your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to build our lives and our eternities upon your sure word. And we bless you and we thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Chapter 10 contains the record of a massively important uh, event in church history. And the significance of that event reaches all the way through 2,000 years of history and right into uh, this very room that we're meeting in this morning. For here we have the record of the very first time a gospel presentation or a gospel message was preached to a purely Gentile, that is, non-Jew audience, and then to read of the marvelous results that occurred. Chapter 10 is oftentimes referred to as the Gentile Pentecost. Pentecost was a very exciting event for the Jewish community in Jerusalem when it happened. This is enormously exciting for the Gentiles as well as the Holy Spirit is now poured out upon uh, Gentiles here in the form of Cornelius, his household, all of his friends and everyone that he had gathered into that household. And with them, this begins a great flood of Gentile uh, people who are going to ultimately come into the body of Christ, become Christians all the way through history, and again, into this room, for most of us in this room, are Gentiles. This entire account centers upon a man by the name of Cornelius, and he is a remarkable man uh, by all standards, and it's very clear the Holy Spirit wants us to know that. He was born, we're told in verse 1, verse, uh, one he, rather than being born, he was a, a Roman centurion stationed in the Roman city of Caesarea. And Caesarea was a city that was in ancient Israel, but it was a thoroughly 
a Roman city located 30 miles north of Joppa, where Peter was at the moment. He had stayed in Joppa following the raising of Dorcas uh, from the dead within that city. And Caesarea was the headquarters of the Roman government in Israel at the time. It, Jerusalem was not their headquarters. Caesarea, this beautiful city that was built by the Romans, made a port in the northern section of Israel. This was the Roman capital at that time. Caesarea was a thoroughly Roman city, and it was built by Rome uh, for that very purpose. It was built for the purpose of providing its governors, its officials, its soldiers who were stationed there in Israel so far away from Rome to give them a little taste of Rome. And so Caesarea was very pagan, was very sensual, was filled with all of the paganism and the pleasures of Rome. There were Jews that lived in the city, but it was all about Rome, all about uh, Gentiles. And at that time, it was one of the largest and most important cities in the Roman Empire. We're told in the passage that uh, Cornelius was a centurion, and that is that he was an officer in the Roman military. The Roman military broke down in very, very simple terms. Uh, its its uh, military was made up of units called legions. A legion, a Roman legion, was made up of 6,000 men. Then there was a cohort, which was one-tenth of a legion, 600 men. And then it would break down into centuries, groupings of men that were 100 in number. And then over these groupings of 100 were centurions. So century, 100 centurions, 100 over a hundred men. These centurions were essentially the backbone of the Roman army. And if you've read anything about the Roman army, it was a magnificent. I mean, you may, whatever you think about what they did, is in terms of a fighting machine, it was magnificent. It was revolutionary in its time in terms of what it was able to accomplish with comparatively small numbers. And the centurions represented the backbone of that military uh, machine. A centurion would live very close to his soldiers. It wouldn't be like this tent over here or a palace and then the hundred soldiers over here. He was their leader. He was their commander. He was like their mother and father as well. If they became sick, he would visit them and, and help them be restored to health. If they were wounded in battle, he would make sure to take care of them until they could be returned into uh, action. That was the interaction. That was the heart of the centurion, the unity that the centurion felt with his men and his men felt toward uh, him. An ancient historian describes the qualifications uh, of a centurion as follows. Centurions are desired not to be overbold and reckless so much as good leaders of steady and prudent mind not prone to take the offensive to start fighting wantonly, but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their posts. So Cornelius would have been a man of great courage, loyalty, understanding, discipline. He would have been very tough-minded, very, very well-trained. I think it's interesting to realize that every time a centurion is mentioned in the New Testament, 
whether in the Gospels or in the book of Acts, they are always spoken of favorably and, and because of the greatness of their character and, uh, in, 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 uh, by and large. So Cornelius was a man who was highly esteemed and respected professionally. When he came home at the end of a shift or at the end of a tour of, of military duty, came home to his family there in Caesarea, and his entire family, the entire neighborhood that he lived in, they were proud to have him as a husband and as a father and as a neighbor. We're told further that he was, in verse 2, a devout man. He was a godly man. He was a deeply religious man, serious about religion. We're told that he feared God, so he, he had moved way beyond giving any consideration to being an atheist or being an agnostic. He understood that God was real and that God existed, and he had a very, very deep respect for God. He had a very deep reverence for God, and not just any God, but the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament. This kind of a Gentile... Cornelius here would have been what was known as a God-fearer in that day. Notice further in verse 2 that he raised his family in the fear of God as well. It wasn't just enough for him to know God in this way, to seek God in this way, but he also made sure that his family had the same respect for God. He raised his children with a respect for God. He didn't want them raised in all of the moral relativism and the resulting moral garbage of the society that was all around him. He wanted their morals not to be shaped by Rome, not to be shaped by the world, but to be shaped by the God of the Bible. And he was what we would call a very, very solid citizen, a good family man, a responsible father, a solid citizen. That's what we would have uh, looked at him today as. We're told further, as if all of this wasn't enough, that he gave alms to the people. And not only did he give alms, but he gave alms generously. He cared about people. He cared about his fellow man. Further in verse 2, he prayed to God always. He was a man of prayer. He was a man who desired to know the God of the Bible, to converse with him, to have a relationship with him. And as you look at this description that's laid out here, we see he really was a genuinely remarkable man. I mean, it's easy as you read that description, it's easy to think that 90% of the world's population don't live up to the standard that Cornelius lived up to. And it'd be very easy, I think, for the average Christian to say, listen, his life would put a lot of Christians to shame, and there'd be a lot of truth to that. Now, please realize that this detailed description of Cornelius in the Bible is not an accident. There are no accidents in the Bible. It is here because the Holy Spirit is communicating to us that even such a man as Cornelius, even a man as good as this man was, he still needed to be saved. And Cornelius is the portrait of the good man who nonetheless is still in need of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And when you say something like that, following the description 
uh, of Cornelius in the, in the passage by the Holy Spirit, you can almost hear the howls of protest that the secular culture that we live in might uh, raise up in the light of it. Someone might say, are you trying to tell me that a man as deeply religious as Cornelius was, possessing such a deep respect for God, a man who raised his family to have the same respect for God, gives to charity and even prays that he is not going to go to heaven as a result of that? No. That's not what I'm trying to say. That's exactly what I am saying. And more importantly than that, it is one of the whole, it's the whole point of what the Holy Spirit is wanting to say to everyone in this room and to everyone in the world. That's the reason behind the detailed description of Cornelius long before he ever gets saved. Of course, all of this idea that such a man as that needs to be saved, it's an affront to man's pride. And in, in his pride, a person can be very, very tempted to just dismiss all of this as just foolishness. That's crazy to, to declare that someone as virtuous as that man would need to be saved because we all just feel like in the culture that we live in, if we just live a little bit better than somebody else, then we're in the good category, and if you're in the good category, you all get, everybody gets into heaven, and the Bible teaches something different. I mean, it's interesting. If you want to do, do something, if you have the time to do it, all you got to do is pick up a Modesto B, read the uh, funeral services for the next two weeks in Modesto, and go to every one of them, and you'll discover every single person went to heaven. It didn't matter if they, if they were committing an axe murder is their final act before the cops shot them. Someone will get up and say, one day we're going to see them in heaven. They're just having a bad day. And the culture that we live in, and that's, that's just the way that everything gets looked at. You just kind of live a pretty good life and you do the best you can. God honors that, and then you end up in heaven. It's the prevailing view. And to say anything contrary to it is to incur the wrath of the intelligentsia of the world or the culture itself. Paul spoke of all of this in writing to the church at Corinth. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it's a really big deal to miss God through this life. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And our culture looks at things and thinks to themselves, salvation and forgiveness 
That's for terrible people. That's for low lowlifes. That's for notorious sinners. It's not for good people or moral people. And when you talk about a guy like Cornelius needing to be saved or any other good person contemporary today within our culture needing to be saved, it's like an explosion goes on in the minds of many people. How is it that good people need to be saved? How can it be that good people don't automatically go to heaven? All of this indignation is based upon a false premise. How do we conclude a person to be good? How does that happen? It happens on the basis of comparison. We compare them to other people, and if they are better than the average person, then we declare them to be good. The problem with that comparison is that good and bad then become relative. Their definitions fluctuate with the moral condition of mankind at any time in history. There are no fixed definitions for defining good or bad, such as we have in the Bible, the Ten Commandments, or the commandments of the Word of God itself. And so we're grading on a class curve as opposed to this strict kind of immovable standard like 90% and above on the test is an A, 80% and above is a B, the strictness of that standard, and so forth. And thus, because our moral standard is plunging at such a rapid rate today, the person who's considered a good person today, morally speaking, would likely have been considered morally appalling 100 years or 50 years ago in our nation. Well, heaven determines all of mankind unfit for heaven in and of ourselves. And it does so also on the basis of comparison, but on the basis of a healthy comparison. Not in sinful man comparing himself with other sinful men, but based upon a righteous standard, based upon the holiness of God the holiness of heaven, based upon perfection. And because of that, God then declares, as Paul wrote in that great treatise on salvation, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, that there is none righteous, no, not one. Not even Cornelius. Not even a Cornelius. Not even you or me. Paul wrote later in that book of Romans, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's a sinner. The New, New Living Translation puts that verse, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, that's not the worst part. The worst part isn't that I'm a sinner and that I've been def righteously defined as a sinner by God. I'm certainly not going to argue the case with God, not with my past. That's not the worst part of it, though. Our sin wouldn't ultimately matter if there weren't then consequences to a lifetime of sin and a lifetime of imperfection among even the best or even the greatest of men and women in our actions and in our words and in our thoughts and in our motives, our doing, our saying, our thinking. But there is a consequence. And Paul went on to write of it. 
in that same, later in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, and he said, for the wages of sin is death. The wage of sin, the paycheck that sin earns, is a physical death in this life and then an eternal death or judgment in the life to come. Again, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and the consequence is we fall short of the glory of God. Our sin has separated us from a relationship with God, the relationship that we have been created for. And that has to be rectified in this life, or that separation from the glory of God will then extend on into eternity. I am fascinated by Paul's use of, of the word, the phrase, fall short in Romans 2. Uh, 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. kind of puts a picture within your mind. If you wouldn't mind picturing your mind, you've gone to a circus as kind of a young person or maybe not so young person, and there's a trapeze artist who is uh, performing before the crowd. And a trapeze refers to that horizontal metal bar that is then held up in, uh, in the air by two uh, ropes. And here is the trapeze artist. He or she swings on that trapeze. And if a trapeze artist swings from one trapeze to the other and they miss the approaching bar, it doesn't matter whether they miss it by three inches or whether they meet, miss it by ten feet they're still going to fall into a heap on the ground below. It doesn't matter if a person misses heaven by three inches, in the case of Cornelius and perhaps others, or somebody misses it by 100 miles in the case of Ted Bundy or, or uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. That is the condition of every single person. It doesn't matter whether we miss heaven by an inch or a mile. It is still to miss heaven as fully and as effectively uh, as the other. Now, it fascinates me that ultimately none of this had a detrimental effect upon Cornelius. This is amazing. This is the difference between Roman culture and American culture. Here Peter comes into Cornelius' house, and he told him that he's a sinner and that he needed to be saved, and this is how he needs to be saved. And there's no record that Cornelius, for all of the virtue of his life, the morality of his life, that he then says to Peter, who are you calling a sinner? And, and don't you know that I'm a good man? You can check with anyone here in the city of Caesarea. Get out of my house. I'm not going to listen to you. One of the beautiful things about Cornelius, it's a humility, is that he wasn't offended at all, which tells me that no man or woman is truly good who is offended at being informed of their spiritual condition and the need for God's forgiveness. And there is a deep pride and self-righteousness in the heart of a person who cannot accept God's definition of them and assessment as a sinner. And the cross is intended to offend that pride and to offend that self-righteousness. It's intended to do that. It's intended to insult. And one of the reasons it's intended to do that is so it will wake us up out of the stupor of the idea 
that we are of, of not realizing that we are less than perfect. We are all sinners, and that our sin has separated us from a relationship with God, the very relationship with God that we've been created for. And the cross comes in, and it smites all of these ideas that somehow I am good enough in and of myself in order to enter into heaven on my own terms. Think about the pride and the arrogance of a culture that believes that, but also of an individual that believes that about themselves. What a, what a horrible high view of myself, and what a terrible low view of heaven and God. And, and it's so separated from reality that it's insane, but people hold to it. And trust me, I know what I'm doing in this room right now. I know what I'm saying. I know what I'm saying is an offense to some people, but sometimes we've got to be offended out of a wrong view and to rethink my wrong view, especially when it is the single most important view or decision that I will make in my life concerning eternity. Cornelius was not troubled not one bit, and he was a great man, and he was a good man in and of ourselves. None of us are good enough to merit a relationship with God. And I think it's only our pride and our sense of entitlement and self-importance that is so nurtured in this goofy culture that we live in that could make us think so. Now, let's move on by, and, and let's gather our breath here just a little bit by moving on to the third point here, and that is to look at the message that saved Cornelius and his household there in verses 34 uh, to 43. And uh, what did Peter come in and preach to them that the Holy Spirit was so happy about that the entire room was born again in an instant? Notice in verses 36 and 30 through 38, Peter spoke to Cornelius and his household of the life and the ministry of Jesus, of his incarnation that he had been sent to the nation of Israel, that he is the source of God's peace, that he is the Lord of all. Peter spoke to Cornelius of the miracles that Jesus did, of the healings that he did, the delivering of the demon possessed that he did. Peter went on in verse 39 and declared that Peter and other apostles were eyewitnesses of all of this ministry of Jesus in his incarnation. He went on in verse 39 and beyond. He spoke of Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, how it is that he was died upon a tree, upon the cross, and how it is that Jesus died for our sins, not only enduring one of the most gruesome deaths that a person can endure physically, but on top of that, enduring a death that was one of the most shameful deaths that a person could die. There, virtually unclothed as his robes were taken away, down into just a garment around his waist, he hangs there. The Son of God upon that cross made a spectacle to sinful man, Jew and Gentile alike, and willing to endure not just the physical pain, but the emotional shame to provide us with salvation. And then in verse 40, very significantly, how God raised him on the third day. 
And the cross of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts is never, ever mentioned except that it is also mentioned with and coupled with referring to His resurrection from the dead. The Scriptures prophesied that He would be raised from the dead, but also because that resurrection of Jesus reveals to us that everything that He taught in His life, and specifically about salvation, the need for salvation, the way of salvation, that all of that uh, salvation being found in Him is true. As someone has wonderfully put it, the resurrection is the amen of the Father to the it is finished of the Son. In verse 41, Peter continues with how that Jesus' resurrection, following His resurrection, the apostles, including Peter, they repeatedly supped with Peter. Verse 42, that Jesus commanded the apostles to preach to everyone that He will one day be the judge of the living and the dead, that every single human being that's alive now today or has ever lived will one day stand before Him in judgment. And then in verse 43, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior promised by the Old Testament prophets. And Cornelius was familiar with the Old Testament prophets. And further, verse 43, that whoever believes or trusts in Him for the forgiveness of their sins, that they will receive the remission of sins. And as soon as Peter got those words out of his mouth, that salvation and the forgiveness of sins is found by putting one's trust in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius, his whole household, all of his friends that he had brought into his house, and they were instantaneously born again. And it speaks to the earnestness with which they were listening to every single word that came out of Peter's mouth. And as Peter is laying out these truths concerning Jesus, they are believing them as fast as it comes out of his mouth. Just like this, boom, boom, boom. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. They're gobbling up every syllable of God's truth that is coming out of Peter's mouth and out of his heart. And then when Peter got to the gospel and the need to believe in that instant, in that second, as they're absorbing and believing in their hearts, they were born again. There was no prayer that was needed there. It was all happening inside of them. That's the quality of seeker that they were. And here the whole household is then born again. All of them were in the same spiritual condition, all of them wanting the salvation that's found in Christ. And they began to speak in tongues as well. Peter then water baptized them, and then he continued with them a few days in order, doubtless, to teach them and disciple them in their new relationship with God. Now allow me to close with additional lesson that I think is vitally important to understand in our world today. And it is very, very important to recognize in this account concerning the salvation of Cornelius that he was a seeker, that he was a seeker, and that he lived up to the light that he had. He was a seeker 
who lived up to the light that he had. And to realize that when a person does that, they seek God and they live up to the light that they have, that God will make sure that that person will come to a faith in Jesus and receive the salvation that is found in Him. It is so important for each of us in this room and for our entire culture and our entire world to realize and to understand that we are responsible to live up to the light we have and that when we do, God will make sure that we will come to a faith in His Son. One of the most heartbreaking tragedies of our culture is the almost utter absence on the part of most people to live up to the light that they have spiritually in making any effort to come into spiritual truth or as a part of their one day coming to faith in Jesus for salvation. But somebody might ask, what light are you talking about? What light are we supposed to live up to? I'll give you a few examples. The light of creation. The light of creation. How that all day, every day, and all night, every night, throughout the entire world in a language that every single person can understand, whether they're educated or they are non-educated, all of creation around us testifies to the existence of God. It testifies to a Creator. The creation that you see, the heavens, the earth, all around us, the human body, what a surgeon sees in the human body when he or she performs surgery, all of that creation, it speaks of the fact that there's a creator. And everywhere we look in life, the principle is the same. Creation always speaks of a creator. Whether we're talking about a house or a bridge or a watch or a painting, we realize that those things don't just happen. They exist because somebody created them. There is always, there is always a creator behind any and all creation. And what is true of a house or a watch is also true of the heavens and the earth. And as we look at the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them, it speaks to us of a creator. The sunrise speaks of a creator every day. The sunset speaks of a, of a creator every single day. David wrote, inspired by the Spirit of God in Psalm 19, and he was a great lover of God, but also a great observer of nature. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day it utters speech, and night unto night it reveals knowledge. And there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all of the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. And in fact, the witness of creation to the existence of a creator, whether looking at that creation through a telescope or through a microscope or looking at it through the naked eye, that Scripture declares that what the creation speaks of a creator is so clear that only a fool would deny the existence of God. And David writes in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now that's strong. That can offend people. 
But when God looks at, when heaven looks at what has been supplied to us to make us aware that He exists and to miss God playing video games for 70 years in the course of my life to miss God behind all that is around us day in and day out, that it's only a fool that could live those long years and not conclude there is a God. It is strong language, but I'll tell you, sometimes strong language is needed to break through the hardness of our hearts and the strength of our indoctrinations, whether they are family indoctrinations or secular indoctrinations or secular educational indoctrinations that can occur. Then there's the light of design, and what is true of the light of creation all around us is also true of its design. And everywhere we look around in life and we see design, we realize that there is a designer behind that design. Design always testifies to the existence of a designer behind the design. And it's true of a jet airplane. It's true of an iPhone. No one would ever deny it. No one, no, you'd be crazy to deny it. No one would claim that an iPhone is self-existent. Clearly, there is a designer behind it. I look at an iPhone, and, I, and it's a marvel to me. I was just thinking about this the other day. I mean, I have, a, I have an iPad, I use a computer, I have an iPhone, I use all these things as much as I choose to use them and all, and I was thinking to myself, when I, when I worked for, uh, for the phone company, I began as an operator. There were party lines back then, multiple people on the phone. The phone only hung on the wall, and other people could listen to your conversations. No one would deny that there is a designer behind an iPhone, and God looks at it and says, what is true of that design is also true of the amazing design that we see in the world around us. Again, the seasons, the tides, the orbits of the sun and the moon, the human body, the rhythm of nature, all of these things. And as marvelous as an iPhone is or a computer is and as complex as it is, all of creation is infinitely more complex. And all of this creation and design is intended to cause a thinking person. But that's the problem. Taking a minute to think, it's intended to cause a thinking person to seek to know the creator and the designer behind what they see every day to seek to know God. And it is illogical, but we no longer live in a logical society. It is illogical and it is irresponsible, but we no longer live in a responsible society. I'll finish the sentence in just a minute. It is illogical and irresponsible to ignore the witness and the light of creation and design all around us for a lifetime and not to recognize that there is a creator and designer behind it and then to seek to know that creator and designer as Cornelius did. There's also the light of conscience, and I talk about this with some regularity. Our conscience is this intuitive God-given knowledge of right and wrong 
and every human being has it. And we have this intuitive, God-given knowledge of right and wrong coupled with the realization that we should always do what is right and that we should never do what is wrong. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul wrote that every person born into this world possesses that conscience. And as we look all around the world and we see that it's so, all around the world there is this recognition that lying is always wrong, stealing is always wrong, murder is always wrong, and so forth. There's a uniformity of conscience within the human condition. And then the interesting thing is the witness of the conscience that to refrain from lying or stealing or murder or so forth is always right. But one of the fascinating things about our conscience is that the standard of our conscience is higher than our actual practice. No human being in human history has ever lived up to the standard of their conscience. And why don't we do that? Because our conscience does not have its origin in us, in man. It has its origin in someone who is greater than us, someone who created us. It has its origin in God who is higher than us. And every day that great gulf that exists between what I know to be right and wrong and the life that I'm actually living, that great gulf between those two places is communicating to each and every one of us again all day, every day, that we have been created by someone who is greater than us and that something has happened in which we have fallen from this higher thing that we were created to do and to be. And it's known as the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. All of this is just as the Bible teaches. Another light of life is just stopping for a moment and looking at the reality of the world around us, life around us, and then asking ourselves the questions that will naturally ensue. Why are we here? Why are we here? What's the meaning and purpose of life? How did all of this get here? Why are people the way that they are? Why is there so much crime, so much violence, so many wars? Why has it been man's portion? from the very beginning. Why aren't we perfect? Why aren't we perfect? What happened? What's the explanation for our condition? Why do people die? Why does death exist at all? What happens after death? Am I prepared for death? What must I do to be prepared for death? It's the light of a mind. And it's the light of an empty heart that realizes there must be something more to life than he who dies with the most toys wins or that they don't give me an award at the end of life for having eaten the most pasta. There has to be something more to life than the life that I see lived around me. And to ask the questions that life is intended to provoke in a person's life 
if we just keep our eyes open and our ears open. Every single human being in this room and in this world should be seeking to know, actively seeking to know the Creator behind all this creation, the designer that's behind all this design, the author of our conscience and the explanation for the moral and the physical realities of the world all around us. That's our responsibility. That's our responsibility. Not to spend our entire lives working and eating and watching TV and playing video games and on that stupid phone 24-7 and entertaining ourselves to death and then when we waste a three score and ten years in that way, then putting the full responsibility upon God to break through our animal-like existence and get our attention, and then one day ultimately blaming Him if we don't end up saved and in heaven. And Cornelius jars us out of this stupor that we find ourselves in in the world. The capacity that each of us has to live our life spending it on nonsense, stuff that means nothing and will never mean nothing, and never taking one day to think about the existence of God, why I'm here, the meaning and the purpose of life. And how many people within our own city and within our own nation and world are just in this kind of a zombie shuffle through the malls and through life, and it's like, have you ever stopped for a moment between the trips to Costco and loading up those carts that there's something more to life than that, and then what are the movies they're going to give to us this summer, and then what shows are they going to put on the television in the fall, and then what other games are they going to give us to play with the remote and all, and to just stop and think above that level and to further realize I have a responsibility to do that as a human being who has been created in the image of God. We are not created or intended to live like animals. My dog gets to live like that, but he was not created in the image of God. We do not get to live like that because we have been created in the image of God, and there is a responsibility that is attached to that. Cornelius jars us up out of all of this when we realize that he was a seeker, even as a good man and as a moral man, getting all of the pats on the back that a person like that would receive in life, and he, and as a seeker, and he teaches us that each of us needs to be a seeker as well. I am so troubled by how many people are just mindlessly going through life and on their way into eternity without thinking about anything more than what's on ESPN or Fox News or whatever the vice might be. And we need someone to come in and say, stop and think about it. Life does not consist in the abundance of the things that we have 
or that we experience. And the Bible teaches that if we live up to the light that we have, that that light will lead us to a faith in Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, and into a relationship with God. And it's modeled repeatedly in the New Testament and in the book of Acts. An Ethiopian eunuch is making his way home from a spiritual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, back to Ethiopia. He's a seeker. He's not saved yet. He's a good man. He's a prominent man, but he's not a saved man, but he's a seeker. He's thinking about life. He's thinking about these things that Cornelius was thinking about. And so what does God do? He makes sure that that man is going to come into contact with the gospel. And so he sends Philip off into that deserted part of the world to then come alongside that chariot, preach the gospel to him. The man is born again and water baptized. The same experience is happening here with Cornelius. Cornelius is seeking. God sends Peter to him to speak to him of Christ. I think about the Magi associated with the birth of Jesus. God met them where they were. They are superstitious stargazers. I mean, we, we know them for who and what they become. They're soft in our heart because of their love for our Savior and coming to Him. They're just looking up in the stars, but they're seeking. There's meaning. Who is the God of these stars? Who created these stars? And God gave them a star. He met them where they were. And then he led them from where they were on a journey of hundreds of miles and following that star to then come face to face with Jesus in order to know the truth about salvation and to be saved themselves. Always, always, always. God will do it by visions. He'll do it by dreams, sending a man or a woman, sending a Christian, a billboard, sending an angel, or having you wander into a church like this on May 22, 2016. This account concerning the salvation of Cornelius is maybe just about the most important thing that could be spoken to the blindness and the stupor of the culture that I live in because it teaches us two very vital lessons that are lost upon the culture and most often actively resisted by the culture. Number one, everyone needs to be saved and forgiven. No matter how good our lives might be in comparison to other people, And then number two, each of us is responsible to live up to the light we have. And if we do so, we will come to trust in Jesus as our Savior. That's Cornelius' story. Now, how about you? How about you? What will you do? with Christ. The passage is given to us to encourage us to follow Cornelius' example and then to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins the second you hear the gospel and receive the opportunity. The world we live in is crazy. It's crazy. And it's not half done. 
when you live in a nation that is having a serious discussion about how a man can self-identify as a woman and go into the same restroom that my daughters and granddaughters are in, you're not dealing with sane people anymore. And it's not going to stop there. Either the world is crazy and God is sane, or the world is sane and God is crazy. You make up your mind. You see it. You see the world we live in. And it's not just morally and things like this that we can bring up and all, all of that. Look at the world. It's on fire. Look at the wars. Look at our foreign policy that set entire nations on fire and produced the whole refugee surge. Look at the economy that everybody with any kind of a mind at all knows is being propped up by artificially and as a deck of cards. Everybody can look at the world and say, this is crazy. That's why there's this sense that there's no peace with the direction and all. Well, you and I, we can't change the world. But you don't have to become insane. You follow insanity, you will become insane. Turn from it. Look at the quality of nation that a faith in Christ will produce. This nation was once that nation. Look at the quality of human being that God's Word and His Holy Spirit produces. Look at that. Look at the sanity. You know, the demoniac seated, clothed in his right mind. This is what God does. We can't change the world, and I don't know that the world is going to change. All I care about is if you're not a Christian and you are in this room today, I'm talking to you. Don't wait for the world to turn. Don't wait for your family to turn. Don't wait for your husband or your wife to turn. You stop and think and then make the decision for yourself. And if you'd like to choose to follow the God and have a relationship with the God who created you by putting your faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they would love to do that. Strong medicine this morning. And I don't say it to build arrogance or pride, but we know the truth. And everybody has a right to hear the truth and then to do with it as they see fit. And right now there is such a pressure on pastors and on churches and Christians, you experience it as well, to acquiesce to the culture, don't stand against the culture, and we're going to get absorbed by the insanity of the culture. We are to be winsome, we are to be loving, but we are to make a stand in the culture for the sake of those who will one day wake up just like we did to who in the world am I 
And how in the world did I get here? And is there an alternative to the path that I'm on? And then for the path to God to still have a witness and a voice for it in the culture that we're in so that those people can then come to the Lord just like others did for us. It's a clash, not of civilizations. It's a class of truth. It's a class of, uh, clash of ideology. And there's no getting away from that clash. And here is Cornelius' wonderful story speaking to us of the importance of what we've talked about here this morning. I just want you saved. I just want you saved. And sometimes it takes a two-by-four to make me realize that I got to stop and think and not just zombie my way through life without thinking about the most obvious things and the most important things. And if we will, God will lead us to his son. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your love for souls. Thank you for our testimony this morning, the men and women and people that you used and brought into our life and set the stage and planted the seed, Lord, kept work in our lives to keep us from losing ourselves completely in a world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that there was something bigger, something more, something better. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this message this morning in every person's heart that is here today and that not a single person would leave today apart from a faith in you. It's been said that to think is to thank, Lord, because it is to see you in everything. Thank you, Lord, for the, our Savior. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the privilege of a new birth and being made a new creation. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for all of the things that we could say thank you for this morning and fill the rest of the afternoon. We bless you this morning from this place. We bless you, Father, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.